to create this show out of this pandemic and out of the civil unrest, I think is hopefully going to bring a lot of joy just because it's funk, which is like, you know, rooted in black southernness and that I'm marrying it with uh, the holiday spirit. I'm hoping is going to do some healing. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lortel. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. Let me introduce my co-host for the afternoon, my dearest, closest friend, Joy Michelle. Joy. Hey, love. Welcome. How are you? Hello. <laughs> I wish you our viewers me. could see you today. You look gorgeous. That means a lot to me coming from you. Yeah. You had a real <laughs> glamour squad come in today, didn't you? I just put a hat on. Okay. You know what? Let's get right to our guest. Musician, extraordinaire, director, actor. Let's just bring him right on and start the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our special guest, Everett Bradley. Welcome, Everett. Hey, welcome. Hey. Thank <laughs> you so much. So happy to be here. Thank you. We are so happy to have you. I have done a deep dive into Everett this past week, trying to prepare myself for this interview. Wow. Really? Mm -hmm. I haven't done a deep dive into Everett in a long time. Oh, you should do it. I'll send you my notes if you want. You could read about your life. It's a funky journey, Everett. It's a funky journey. <laughs> but, you know, I want to start off with talking about what's coming up, because that's really what we're here to promote, too. And then we'll go back a little bit. But Holodelic Home with Papadelic. Right. Is your show. Tell us a little bit about how it started and where people can watch and the evolution of this show. Well, as maybe some people don't know, is that Holodelic was supposed to come to the Lucille Lortel Theater this year, this December, doing a five-week run for 2020. But for obvious reasons, the pandemic happened. And so I felt like something should happen. And I remembered that I have six music videos that I have made over the last 10 years. And so I approached uh, my director, Michael Heitzman, about helping me make something at home. Since everyone is stuck at home, I thought, well, Papadelic is stuck at home too. Mm -hmm. And so let's <laughs> take him there. And that sort of was the inspiration. I mean, you know, I have to admit it was the pandemic had something to do with it. But, you know, this whole thing is so awful. I didn't want to give it the credit at once. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's how we came up with uh, Home with Papa Delic. Are we actually going to see Papa at home or is he going to be on stage? Listen, Papa is waking up in his onesie. He is... <laughs> brushing his teeth, he's making coffee, he's baking in the kitchen, 
He's sitting by the fireplace. He's at the piano. He's even in his hot tub. <laughs> All right now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, he's decorating his home and getting ready for the holidays and bringing, basically bringing his audience into his home. So are you doing this live or is it pre-recorded? It's pre-recorded, pre-taped. It's all been shot. Ever tell me a little bit about the evolution of Papadelic and Holodelic. Tell me about, you know, where it started, how long you've been doing it, how the idea came to you. And, you know, it became a very popular character and, and people really started following it. I mean, I, you know, because of the pandemic, unfortunately, I, I'm 100% sure you would have had a wonderful run. But what's the evolution? How did it start? Where did it, where did it yeah, go? Yeah, uh, it was born out of 9-11 actually. And my friend Mike Kyoto and I were together and we were so saddened by all the things that were going on in New York City at the time. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to do something to lift ourselves up. So we decided to write a Christmas song. And after writing one, we were so inspired by it. And it just felt so good that we just kept writing. And then I just kept writing and I collaborated with others and a year later, I had an album called Toy. And I started performing that album at places like, I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, I was doing some shows for about two years supporting this album. One year, my drummer and bass player thought it would be fun to do like a stank P-funk version of the album. And so... <laughs> I loved the idea, mostly because I grew up on P-Funk. And my first album that I ever purchased was a, a Sly and the Family Stone album. Yes. So I grew up on that and Ohio Players and Earth, Wind and & Fire. I'm pretty well versed in that sort of world of music and that time period. So I brought that into my Christmas album and I literally transformed from Everett into Papadelic on stage. Like took my clothes off and I dressed and put on a big fur coat and the fro and the glasses and some sparkly platform boots and Papadelic was born. Sort of a father Christmas version of George Clinton. Yes, yes. It's <laughs> the funkiest Christmas song that I've ever heard aside from James Brown's Santa Claus Go Straight to the Ghetto. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the only song that I know that is funky and Christmassy. And then when I heard all yours, I was like, okay, this is a bop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. a real bop. This is a Christmas. Yeah, it usually takes people by surprise because they never think of combining the holidays with that style of music, but it really speaks. Mm -hmm. I mean, not only to me, but to everyone to bring that kind of joy to everyone's holiday. And what I really like about it too, and what I think other people really enjoy is that we embrace all shapes, sizes, colors, and beliefs. You know, the only thing that we require is that you shake your rump. Mm -hmm. And show your heart, and that's it. In your, home. I love that. <laughs> Shake your rump, show your heart. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is very it is very much a throwback to I mean the music that I loved growing up. It it's got such a a funk feeling like uh, the Sugar Hill Gang and yes. the Commodores and all you know the style of dress and the way it just makes your body move. You don't want to yes. watch me. You don't want to watch me dance. But uh, I mean, that's that's the feeling that I get from watching you and doing this and seeing the videos. I, I look forward to 2021 when we're able to have it back at the Lortel again for yeah, you to we'll do your live show again. Yeah. We'll but take there. me back a little bit to, because I'm fascinated by your childhood. And I, I told you before, I had a, a, a nice talk with your dear friend and director, Michael Heitzman. And he gave me a little bit about your background and, you were going into sports, right? You were going to be, what sports was it? Football. Football. Okay, you were going to be a football player. And then, I mean, you, you tell the story because I think All it's right. fascinating how it. Well, besides my family being very education oriented, my dad was a high school principal and my mom was a first grade teacher. My dad also was a coach of all sorts, football, he coached wrestling, he coached track, and I have four siblings, and we were all forced to play sports. Like, there was just no escaping it. <laughs> so we are all swimmers, we're all runners, we're all, you know, and I have one other brother who was actually a professional football player. He mm -hmm. uh, played for the Detroit Lions. He's, of course, retired now. But when I was in high school, I was supposed to be the next you know, football player to follow in his footsteps. But my mother, bless her heart, she, behind my father's back, got me voice lessons so I could prepare an audition to audition for the School of Music, Indiana University School of Music. And I got in, and then I had to present the whole thing to my dad, <laughs> which was scary, And but I got through it. And, it, well, first of all, he was impressed that you know, a school actually gave me money to study music. Like that was just beyond him. I mean, you know, bless my parents' hearts. They were like old Southern conservative people and only lucky people get to do those sort of things. So in order for me to use my scholarship and go to Indiana, I had to attach education to it. So I have a degree to teach music K through 12. I've never taught. I just did that to appease them. But I mean, I actually do volunteer now here in New York, but um, that's sort of the condensed version of it, if that makes any sense. I mean, as many parents say, okay, well, if you're going to go into the arts, then you need to have something to fall back on, yep. period. Yep. So if you're not going to make it as an actor, a musician, et cetera, then you better get a degree in teaching so, so you can teach. But, uh, you know, fortunately for you, that didn't happen. Yeah, it was a really, I'm downplaying it, but it was pretty stormy in the house, you know, because my mother bought me a piano against my father's will. He did not want that to happen. And it was so odd. It was because he didn't want it to happen because he knew how much I'd like it, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It's crazy. And he was, I think he was just scared that I would like, you know, go for something that I wasn't going to be successful at or or not make money or whatever. But my mother was totally the opposite. She was like, no, he needs to be happy. That's, that's where success happens. 
Well, in preparation for this, I went down the rabbit hole of Everett and I saw that lovely video of Meredith um, surprising you with your teacher. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can you talk Meredith, about yeah, yeah. can you talk about that experience and what it was like to have a teacher that really had that kind of impact on you? She that was Nancy Krauss is her name, and she was my theater teacher, and she she brought me into theater. Yeah, she just introduced me to that. And she also uh, brought me into show choir too. And she just, I think she um, had heard about me through other students and she sort of had an eye on me too because she knew that I played in the band and she heard that I was a singer as well and brought me in. And she actually had many talks with my dad to convince him to let me pursue my dreams. And so to be <laughs> surprised on that show like that with her, because she was such an integral part of my creative life growing up, it was a little devastating. And uh, I think I teared up on the show as well, just because I was just so overwhelmed. But um, yeah, that's who she was. I'm still in touch with her. And uh, I think I remember you saying something on there about that was the moment that you knew that New York was the place for you. Can you talk about that? Yes, because she asked me if I would be interested in auditioning for, uh, it was a contest and you had to sing, dance and act. And the winner gets flown to New York and sees like Broadway shows with a group of people. And I auditioned and I won it. And that was my first time coming to New York. And after seeing all the shows and eating hot dogs on the street and seeing people in leg warmers and makeup <laughs> between shows <laughs> and seeing such a diverse cross-section of people all crammed into one city. It was for me, my perfect ideal world, you know, all come together in one place. And I was so inspired and I knew this was my home. How old were you at the time? 18. Yep, 17, 18 years old. How did the Meredith Vieira experience come to you? I mean, you were her musical director. You know, from the looks of it, it looked like you guys had a real camaraderie. And I mean, from the outside world, she seems like a, a magnificent, incredible, lovely woman. Yes, um, really lovely, incredibly authentic. Mm -hmm. and she is really like that. She and her management, they called managers, agents, nightclubs around the city. And they said that my name came up three times. So they decided to just find me. And I was, I have to say, glamorously found on tour with Bruce Springsteen in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you name drop, you you right? can't. You, you must must talk about that experience with Bruce Springsteen. You, I, so, you, let's yeah, move away from I Meredith. I, you and, love her, but let's go to Bruce. Right, right, right. Well, now, when I picked up the phone, they were just in awe. Like I think at that moment, they were already they had decided like this is the guy. And then when I went to the office when I was available, she actually wasn't there at first. I met her, her managers and her agents. And then I felt some fingers like rubbing my shoulders. And I thought, who could be rubbing my shoulders? I don't know anyone here. And it was her. 
like she had already decided that I was part of her family and that, and basically they were hoping that I would say yes. During this time when there's so much stuff that's going on in the world, the pandemic, um, the civil unrest and the injustices that have happened and you being a man from the South, I know that everybody is feeling very deeply right now. For you to be able to bring this uplifting show to people, what does that mean for you right now? That's a really good question. When the sort of Black Lives Matter movement sort of emerged, you know, over um, George's passing, it really affected me deeply because I grew up in Indiana and we were in white suburbia and it wasn't that easy. When we first moved in, our yard was rolled a lot, like as in cars going through and putting skid marks. They would throw eggs at our house. And, you know, excuse me for saying this, but we even had signs on our door that says, get out of our neighborhood niggers. Mm. So it was very deep, but my father was an amazing person about it. And he knew how hurtful it was, but he kept saying to us to just ignore and just keep your eye on the prize and move forward. And he said, the, he's like, what they want you to do is to be hurt. And they want you to be worn down. He's like, and you just cannot let that happen. And that's what I grew up with. And, you know, it's so funny. And when I got to New York, I kept thinking, oh, not in New York. Because this is like the melting pot of the world. And when I put my hand out to get a cab and couldn't get one, I was like, wow, this is, this is real. This is real. So I, it's been painful for me. So when this happened this year, I was actually excited that this conversation was happening and that, um, that to see these protests and to see so many white kids like protesting was like, wow, this is fantastic. And, you know, Usually when change happens, it's like, it's usually when white people align themselves with black and brown people. And that's, you know, I think that's when, you know, Kennedy did it for us. And I feel like that's happening again. So to create this show out of this pandemic and out of the civil unrest, I think is hopefully going to bring a lot of joy just because it's funk, which is like, you know, rooted in black southernness and that I'm marrying it with uh, the holiday spirit, I'm hoping is going to do some healing. Yes. Well, take us back a little bit. I'd, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about touring, playing with Bon Jovi and playing with Springsteen and what that experience is like. Again, two artists that I grew up on and grew up with. Can you talk about the... Um, immersiveness of touring and what that was like, especially with Bruce? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's important that I tell you the story about how I got into the Bruce camp. Please do tell. It says a lot about the him and the organization. It was a uh, fall of 2011. And I got a phone call from a guitar playing friend of mine named Bobby Bandera from the Jersey shore scene. And he hired me to play percussion for a benefit. So I'm like, great. I was available. I said, send me all the music. 
and I'll learn it. And he sent me the music and they were all Bruce Springsteen songs. So I called him back and I said, Bobby, can you please tell me what's going on here? <laughs> and he said, all right, I'm not supposed to say anything to anyone, but Bruce is creating a benefit for his son. His son goes to Boston College and he's his son has started a scholarship fund there and Bruce wanted to help him raise money for it. So I like, okay, I am playing for Bruce. Okay. <laughs> and it was at the Stone Pony. So I learned all the songs. I get to the venue and my percussion is set up near the front of the stage, which is odd for a percussionist because we usually set up next to the drummers, like the rhythm section is together. So I, again, I turn to Bobby. I'm like, Bobby, what's going on here? And he's like, well, I thought it would be fun for Bruce to just, you know, to have another singer by him and to just someone to just, you know. What? <laughs> and, you know, whatever. I'm like, okay. So Bruce got there for the sound check. Bruce didn't pay any attention to me. He, I think he was just listening the whole time. During the show, though, Bruce had his arm around me. We were sharing the microphone. We were playing percussion. We were doing dance steps together. It was awesome. It was an amazing time. So cut to now it's 2012, January, and I get a phone call from Bruce's management asking if I was available to come in and play with the Eat Street Band. For the first time, he's considering having a percussionist, and he remembered the time that he had with me and wanted to know if I could just come in and just as get a feel of what that might be like. So I'm like, sure. And they said, can you come in three days this week? And I said, no, because I'm going to Japan with Hall and Oates. Oh. <laughs> and they said, can you leave a day later? And I said, no, <laughs> because when I make a commitment to a project, I try to keep it. So mm. I would like to try to do that. And they said, it's Bruce Springsteen. Are you sure you don't want to reconsider? I said, uh, no, I, I'll just stay with us. And they're like, okay. They said, well, maybe we'll be in touch later. So they hung up the phone. And then I hung up and I thought, Everett, really? This is stupid. Why? You, <laughs> you surely can make this... <laughs> Exception. Anyway, I went to Japan. I get an email from the, the, um, the organization asking me to take a picture of my percussion setup and send it to them and to call them when I get back. So I do all of that. I call them when I get back and the management says, it's not like Bruce decided to audition a bunch of percussionists. He was so impressed with your level of commitment that he yes. decided to wait for you. So when I got to the rehearsal, he wouldn't send me any music oh. because if you know Bruce, he's always like taking requests from the audience. So he wanted me to wanted to know how I would be on my feet. But when I got to the, the rehearsal, I had an exact replica of my percussion setup. He wanted me to be extremely comfortable and to do my thing without any music. So wow, that, there you go. <laughs> that speaks volumes about, about that artist, about, yes. about Mr. Springsteen and yes. about the levels he'll go to, to, to make people 
feel at home and comfortable and unbelievable. Right. And he wanted me to be my authentic self. He mm-hmm. wanted to just see me, you know, really. All of this, all of what you're saying is a huge lesson for all the young artists that are listening, that mm. having commitment and having integrity and being true to yourself yes. will rise above, you know, just following the shiny object. So I love that story. I really, really love that. <laughs> I do too. But the, I want to talk about something important here is the foundation you started, say, on stuttering. And I, I want to commit some time to that mm-hmm. because I think it's very, very important that people hear about what you've started and what you've done with this organization. I did not start it. It was started by a man named Taro Alexander who's a colleague of mine from Stomp. We did Stomp together off Broadway. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing a film in, it was the Eastern Europe city. I can't remember right now. <laughs> but anyway, we were out having Indian dinner and he said, I have an idea for a theater company. It will be for young people who stutter. And I said, why young people stutter? He said, because I'm a stutterer, which I did not even know. And he's an actor and how he has been able to mask that, I have no idea. He started the organization and asked me to be the musical director. And that was 19, 20 years ago now. Wow. (laughs) Crazy. And so that's how long I've been involved. I've been the musical director and I'm also on the board as well. And it has been inspiring to work with these kids. And I have to say, I'm a fan of the kids. It's all about them because they're such amazing people. It just fills my heart to provide music as another means of communication for them. And what's really gratifying is that we get such great results from teachers who have them as students saying that they raise their hands more in class and that they're more articulate and their friends have started to embrace them for who they are and not judge them for their stutter. I think it's a great organization. I feel like it's become almost not about stuttering anymore. It's just about respect for young people who, however they're made and whoever they are. It's been an amazing organization. And I know that the Lucille Lortel is a, a, a big supporter as well. Yeah, you know, I think um, stuttering has come to, you know, in the light now as well with Biden doing what he can for stutterers. And I think it's so important to get the kids involved within the art. So it helps them get over their fear and their insecurities and help them with their... Yeah, and people like Biden, people like Carly Simon, people like James Old Jones, people like Bill Withers, all stutterers and all living examples of how stuttering did not hold them back from their dreams. Mm-hmm. What's the process for someone getting involved if someone, if someone has a child that they wanted to get oh, involved? That's a really good question. You can go to the website, which is say.org. Say is Stutterers Association for the Young.org say.org and there's ways to reach out there to the organization and they'll reach out to you 
a lot of speech pathologists also know about it as well. And we're trying to reach out to them too, to let their students know that we exist. Definitely in the tri-state area, but we're also in DC now. We're in Australia, we're out West. There's even kids from, uh, from the UK that come over to our summer camp as well. So we'll put the information up on the website along with information on the holodelic, which is the benefit for them. So we'll, yes, no, we'll put that out up ever. Great. Great. So let me ask you this in terms of the holodelic show. Yeah. And you've been doing it for some time now. Do you get radio play with any of the songs? Because they're all really good. You know, I can see them being a part of, you know, the soulful Christmas list that we all listen to. I, you know, it has not happened. No? And I don't know how to, you know, I think back when I made the record, I didn't have management in place. I didn't have people to help me make that happen. And now you know, all these internet streaming services are so that they just want the newest thing. And this is not new, (laughs) unfortunately, but I'm still working on it and I haven't given up. That is a dream of mine to be, it should be on like R&B playlists, definitely. But a lot of those playlists are, they like to hear covers sort of remade. And a lot of this is, is original. So I think that throws people too. But um, as far as the live show, it is alive and kicking. (laughs) I do think you're right about people wanting, especially during the holiday time, they want remakes of of old songs. Of classics. And it's difficult to make that cut into that medium with a brand new song. Only a few people, I think, have been able to do it, like Mariah and uh, maybe George Michael. A few people have made a new song. We're going to do our best here on the Lord Tell side to break down that wall for you. Hey, yes. You got to have somebody who has a Christmas party, who has the Christmas list with this Christmas, you know, the temptations and the Jackson five and all those mm-hmm. different things going on and have them slide you right there in the middle. Right, slide me in. Oh, what is this? Sugar rump fairies. What's that? <laughs> You know, Everett, Joy talked a little bit before about racial injustice and what the heck is going on in this country. Um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And you said that you think it's been wonderful that you've seen so many different people kind of out there fighting for the same thing. Mm. For theater, for artists, for incredible artists like yourself, what... What is your hope for having conversations and and making change within, not only within our country and the world, but within our theater community and race? Mm. I think that, I think it has come up several times, especially like during the Tonys, where they felt like there weren't enough black and brown people celebrated for their work as an actor or, you know, and there's so many arms for directing, for the creation of music as writers, as costume designers. And there's so many black and brown people that are doing this work that I think need to be noticed and recognized. And when that happens, that's how we bring in more talent. That's how younger kids that are black and brown or Asian or whatever, see that there's a path for them 
to Broadway or to off-Broadway so we can like break down those sort of walls. And I just think that it makes any conversation or any story so much deeper and richer and um, more colorful. So I think it's to our advantage to open those doors however we can and keep those conversations flowing and to educate people, especially the, the theater community about other kinds of people. I think it's interesting also, we've talked to a lot of people about this season and we're trying to really focus in on conversations around change. And I think a lot of people, a lot of artists have said, you know, there, we really don't have enough people of color producers, people of color, you know, huge artistic directors, people running theaters. There aren't enough to make the theater and to actually run it. So what's your hope and in, in change than that within that? Well, I think change is coming, you know, to see shows like Hamilton cast, like multiracially cast playing old white men that created this country is yeah. a huge <laughs> thing for the world to see. And I think it's really like waking up people and arousing their senses. And also hearing non-traditional musical theater, like having rap into this realm and used in a theatrical way. So I think that it's starting to happen and those doors are coming down. And I think it's just the beginning. You've toured the world and I'm sure have been in spaces where you've been the only several times. What words of encouragement do you have for young people that start to experience that? I know right now it's a different climate. I'm hoping and setting an intention for a more conscious climate. But for people who are not yet at that place and young people may have to come face to face with some sort of discomfort, do you have any words of encouragement or advice as to how to handle yourself and still remain professional and have your dignity intact as well? That's good a really question, good question. Girl. Actually, as recent as last year, I was with Bon Jovi on tour and we were in Austria and we had just finished a concert and there's always like an after party hang and there's a lot of security just because, you know, someone like John Bon Jovi needs a lot of protection. It's Bon Jovi. So, <laughs> so we get to the party and I was just on stage with him, like front, like there's only six people in the band, seven, including him. There's huge monitors and we're projected everywhere. So I get to the party and there's a velvet rope and I tell them that I'm in the band and they won't let me in. Mm. Right. Why? Because I'm black. And they're like, they don't believe me. And it wasn't till one of the managers happened to walk by and saw me standing there arguing with the person and they're like, he's in the band. And so that's how I got in. And on one hand, I was really upset and let down. But on the other hand, I just kept thinking, you know, the work is just not done yet. And there's just a lot of work to do. And people have grown up with, you know, baggage and a perception of what 
black people are or what brown people are or what that is and it's up to me to to educate and change and let them know that we are part of this world and we're a huge part of the equation and they just I guess, yeah, you just have to, you know, know that the work is not done and to not let that kind of baggage or ignorance bring you down and keep you from moving forward. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I, Joy and I talk about this all the time. We're on the phone for hours every day. And yes, you're absolutely right. The work is not over and it's up to us to do it, but it's up for all of us. Yeah. Every one of us, especially within our community, within our theater community, it is up to us to keep these conversations going and to, to keep our voices loud and clear. I bow my head to so many of the actors now who are starting these foundations and these big groups that refuse to work with some producers who stand to choose to stand on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I find it fascinating, and I I want those voices louder, yeah, much louder. Yeah, I think they'll get louder. This has been an important year for growth. Yes. I really do believe that. I mean, as tragic as it has felt, and everyone wants it over with, it has not to change the subject, but it's just forced a lot of people to look uh, at themselves and look at how we treat others, like not being able to work, being stuck at home and being forced to watch TV and watch things over and over and actually have to talk to your child and learning things about them that you didn't know or forcing you have to look in your your own relationships and having to deal with whatever is great or not good about it. All those things, I just think that 2020 has been great for that. And, yes. uh, and I think people are going to become louder, as you say, about things. And clearer. You clearer, know, yes, yeah. clearer. Yeah, and I think with that clarity, it will allow people to have the confidence, as you say, to be louder. Because yeah. you really know what you think and what you feel. And mm-hmm. you've had time to sit with it and be with it. That's all we have right now is time. Yep. Time, <laughs> time is well, a killer, baby. I love it. <laughs> and you got and you got the voice. Yes. You got yes. the time and the voice. Yep. Yes. Exactly. Ever, what's your hope for? I and mean, we've worked in so many mediums, worked in concerts, big, huge arenas, Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, you've acted on Broadway, and we didn't even get to talk about after midnight and Stomp, you were, you know, one of the original U.S. members of Stomp, um, Grammy nominated, so many things. What is your hope for the Broadway and especially our off-Broadway community as we move forward and time goes on? I, I don't think there, I feel like what I do is sort of an old school thing this sort of renaissance kind of person. When I think of that sort of artist, I think of like a, a Gregory Hines or like a Ben Vereen. Sammy Davis. Or Sammy Davis or Barbara Streisand. Those kinds of people who were just immersed themselves artistically in whether it's theater, whether it's film, whether it's music, 
whether it's like they decide to paint, you know, I hope that young people don't let themselves get pigeonholed and just are open to express themselves however they feel in whatever medium they see fit for that period of their life, of their, you know, wherever they are. And to, I, I just hope that it doesn't stop, like that we still have that sort of Renaissance kind of approach to art. I do love that about you. I do love that you um, have your hand in so many artistic venues and themes and you do everything. You're an actor, you're a singer, you're a musician, you do so many things. And we, we don't have many of those talents left. Or if we do, people pigeonhole them into, okay, no, you're just an actor. And no, you're just a singer. And no, you're, you're just playing with the band. But you've broken out of that shell in a way. You're able to do it all. And I, I love that about your artistry. I love that about your craft. You don't let anybody pigeonhole you into doing just one thing. No, yes. I don't. I don't really know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, with your development, at, uh, with your art, because you are all those things that Eric said with choreographer and dancer and all, you know, everything. Do you remember there being points in your artistic career where you were given an opportunity and you felt like, oh my goodness, this is a whole new world for me, but I think I can do it. What, what kind of conversation or what did you, when you were discovering, okay, I, I sing and I, I, and I act, but now I'm about to choreograph and now I'm about to dance and now I'm about to play percussions and now I'm about to, what, what, what kind of conversation did you have with yourself to help you feel the fear and do it anyway? Well, I mean, I had lots of support growing up, for sure, um, in high school. And then when I went to college, I was in a singing group that actually allowed me to do other things. Like, <laughs> it's funny. It was the Indiana University, and we were called the Singing Hoosiers. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I I was, it was a, a requirement for my degree, but... We also did dance routines, and so I was able to choreograph in it. And I also wrote arrangements for the, the choir and rhythm arrangements, too, and put shows together. And I think that was sort of the beginning of having this school where they, and I was playing in a funk band at night. And so I had the school <laughs> that just allowed me to just figure stuff out. And they didn't judge. And, uh, and when I got to New York, I did try to just tighten it up a little bit because I got scared. So I just, I only sang and played percussion. That was it. But it wasn't until I got into Stomp mm. where those directors, they create the role based on who you are. And the more diverse, the better. Like they didn't want all actors in there. They didn't want all drummers in there. There's bricklayers in there. There's DJs in there. There's painters in there. And they would embrace that and make that a part of the show. Uh, and it was scary. It's something that, you know, if you're an actor, you're not used to that, where it's based on who you are, which forces you to do a little bit of soul searching and to dig deep within who you are and then put that on stage and so that was it and I feel like ever since Stomp I never turned back 
And I mm. just embraced that idea and I just let it flow to everything that I did from then on out. What do you want to do that you haven't done yet? That's a good question. Deep breath, deep breath. I, it could I, be as many or I'm, as few as you want. I'm like 10 years now in trying to create a one person show. I feel like that would be it to, if I could just gather up all the Everett's and put them on. <laughs> <laughs> and put them on one stage. That would be the ultimate. And I have some ideas about it, but I'm still chipping away at it. Will you come back and talk to us about it when, when you I, put that, the Lord tells available for you to. Yeah, um, I'm to sure. And, hey, so, I love that theater and it would actually be a I great know. room for me. Me too. Actually, and what I visualize for it. I'm actually very jealous that you, you know, we used to do the show live at the Lord tell on the stage, you know, we'd have two seats and an audience would come here, their favorite artist. And when you said that you walked into the theater the other day, you know, my heart skipped a little bit because it's been so long since oh, I right. even have, you know, there's a certain smell and a certain feel and there's these incredible ghosts at the Lortel. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to scare anybody, but they're good ghosts. You know, <laughs> they I are mean, good ghosts. Yeah, I mean, it's such a magnificent old theater in the village and it's it's iconic and when you said you walked into it the other day i my heart skipped a beat i was so jealous i mean i miss just walking in there and yeah and seeing a production or, or doing live at the lortel there i i miss it i miss yeah. the theater with people so much i know i as soon as i walked in i i stared at the stage i'm like oh i love this place i don't know what it is it feels so good in there and I can totally see Holodelic holding it down. <laughs> it will, it will, it will, it will. Um, I want to um, thank you for your time. Um, this thank afternoon. you. You guys I are mean, such great conversationalists. You great are viewers. You guys lovely. are such smarty pants people. I love it. Well, so I don't know about much. that, but I'm not smarty pants. I know my joy is a smarty pants. But I think. Um, I want to thank you. I want to remind our audience, and we're going to put it up on our website. Everett, go ahead and give an, another plug for your Holodelic Home with Papadelic. Yes, presented by Lucio Lortel. It's Holodelic. Holodelic presents Home with Papadelic. And uh, it's basically a, a holiday special. And it airs Can you find it? on Thursday, December 17th at 8 p.m., and you can find it at Facebook Live uh, on the Holodelic page, or you can go to YouTube. And I can't remember the actually the YouTube. Um, That's okay. We'll we'll put it up for you. Don't yeah, worry. you can post. Well, how how long will it stay on? Will it will uh, it'll it run stay more than on through through the new year? Mm. New oh, well, thank year. you. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, yeah. I got something to do every day now. <laughs> Thank you, Everett. You're one of a kind, and you are uh, a very special it's human a being. being here. Thank you so much. With you all. I you. wish you all the luck and love with Papa Delic and the show, and and Thank what's you. coming next. And let's all look to 2021 for yes. getting back in the theater together. Yes, it's going to be a big old celebration. Mm -hmm. Awesome, Joy D. Michelle. Thank you so much. I Thank love you, love. you. Thank you for joining Great. me. And that's our show. In two days, Joy and I will be back with the final interview of 2020 with Hubert Point du Jour. 
Hubert has starred in multiple shows at the Public Theater. He will be starring in the upcoming Showtime series, The Good Lord Bird. And you may already know him from Madam Secretary, Blind Spot, and The Path. The first interview of 2021 will be with the amazing duo Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. Joy and I will ask about the exonerated, cold country, and everything in between. They'll even tell us about their special personal connection to the Lucia Lortel Theater. That interview will air Friday, January 8th, 2021. Now, we have an announcement. When we started our show, we were committed to recording in front of a live audience. When we had to go virtual, we lost that important special element. So starting in January, we are going to bring back the live in live at the Lortel. Our show will be live on YouTube on Monday nights. We will still release our show as a podcast for those of you who are listening while you are in your car or on your morning run. But for those of you who want to see our artists and write in questions, that will now be an option again. Stay tuned for more details. As always, thank you so much for listening and have a happy and safe holiday season. And for more information on our guests and how to attend one of our future recordings next year from the comfort of your own homes, please visit our website, live at thelortel.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations, and our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Bryant Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.